Take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. What you hold in your hand is not that given in any way by the will of man. It is by the will of God, inerrant, infallible, completely sufficient, entire and complete in every way, so perfect that it can take simple minds and make them wise, so pure it can take sinful lives and make them whole and holy again. You have before you the living Word of God. Psalm chapter 1. On this first day of 2023, I am compelled to call you back to basics. Like an officer in the infantry reminds his soldiers to keep their gear in order, their weapons ready, their minds and bodies alert, so I too today will march through the encampment of the Lord's soldiers and remind you of, of basic things. Or like a doctor at an annual checkup looks you over, pushes and prods and runs tests to make sure that your body is working as it should. So too this morning with the living word of God, I push and prod on your inner man. And run some tests in the lab, spiritually speaking, to see if you are in a healthy, sound, spiritual spot. Or like a good coach before the big game, he walks through his team as they stretch on the field and encourages them and reminds them of basic things. Telling them we cannot win if you don't do the basic stuff, so do it. So too, I walk this morning through the field of God's people, heralding to you the greatest encouragement I know how to prepare you for the challenges, the competitions, as it were, the tests that will come our way in 2023. The rhythm of calendar is good for you to stop and think and assess and look back and take stock and look forward. As you see evidences of God's mercy and blessing in 2022, you're assured that those mercies are unending entering into 2023. Having tested him in 22, you know he is faithful in 23. No matter what the Lord has in his plans for you in the year to come, you are confident that he is with you, that he is your shelter and your comfort, that he is your God and your Lord. But what if I could offer to you greater spiritual happiness in 23 than you knew in 22? Having obviously no way to predict what God might ordain for you circumstantially in the year to come, I can guarantee to you a path that will lighten your soul with the joy of the Lord that will shape your heart to be more delighted in God than you've ever been before. If I could prove that to you, the question on the table for you is, would you be interested? Do you want to be more delighted in God this year than you were last year? Psalm 1 lays before us the path to abundant spiritual blessedness. It's a psalm that sits as the gatekeeper to the Psalter, and the Psalter is just the, a word for the whole book of Psalms. It sits as, as a gatekeeper guarding the message of the rest of the book. In fact, it's been said that everything that is said in Psalms is an exposition of Psalm 1, that we have here in kernel form all the truth that is laid before us in the 149 Psalms to follow. It's a gateway into the worship book of God's people. And it's intended by the Spirit of God to shape us, to transform us, to remake us. And it intends to do that, God's Word intends to do that, in shaping our thinking and our loving, our mind and our heart. And this is what the Psalms do so well. All of Scripture is intended this way, but... The Psalms so well lay before us how we should think and how we should feel, how we should love, 
what we should set our heart on, what should draw our heart's affection. That's what I intend to uncover for you this morning, that there is great blessing for you as you walk in this way of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not, like, are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Did you notice in this very familiar psalm that there are only two ways presented here? There's the way of, of the blessed, of the godly, and the way of the not blessed, the ungodly, the way of the righteous and the unrighteous. So often in Scripture, this is the way it is. There are but two options, thankful or thankless, godly or godless, righteous or unrighteous, saved or lost, blessed or not blessed. These are the two ways presented in Psalm 1, and it's a, a psalm offering to you abundant, superior, unending blessing. The psalm intends to call you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to the greater blessing of the way of the righteous. The word for blessed in verse 1 is in the plural. It, it points to, to spiritual happiness that is abundant and constant. This model man of Psalm 1 is, is looking for this blessing. And it's a blessing that's not just the, the eternal reward of blessing that's coming one day. That's addressed in verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He, he knows he's going to deliver you safely home to your eternal reward, your eternal blessing for being in Christ by grace through faith. But he's not talking about that in verse 1. He's talking about the constant, unending daily experience of spiritual happiness, of spiritual delight, of joy that abounds in the Lord. This is a delight that obviously comes from and is shaped by the Word of God. So this psalm is describing for us the state of spiritual happiness that can be the daily experience of the Christian. We saw from Romans 8 last Sunday on Christmas Day that the, the world is groaning under the curse of our sinfulness. And we saw in that glorious text the promise that, that we have hopes that are unchanged and unchangeable. Promises that are, are set and secure. And no matter the, the groaning of the present hour, there are, are yet glorious things to come. And this hope carries our faith along. We, we persevere believing that God will keep his word, even though we live in the pain of a cursed world and know the difficulty and the groaning of that. Well, Psalm 1 lets you know that you, you don't just have to endure life in this cursed world while you wait for the joys of the fullness of our redemption yet to come. So the Christian life is not just to grit your teeth under the agonies of a cursed world. And hopefully you'll make it through. And then it will give way to eternal, abundant, glorious blessing. Rather, there's continual, abundant happiness offered, even in a cursed world, to the righteous man, the righteous woman. For that to be true for you, we need to see from Psalm 1 this model man, this blessed man. There's four marks of that blessed man in Psalm 1. He's separated He's satisfied, he's successful, and he's secure. You can judge the alliteration later around the dinner table. He is first separated. We see that in verse 1. The description of this godly man is a, a blessed man by what he avoids. It starts with the negative. That is so not cool in 21st century Christianity. But that's where our Lord starts, by his own divine wisdom. Helping us know that blessing starts with what you don't do. He says he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit 
in the seat of the scoffers. Notice the psalmist doesn't just say, the blessed man isn't wicked, nor is he a sinner, nor is he a scoffer. He also does not say, he doesn't just avoid the wicked or the sinner or the scoffer. Rather, he says, the blessed man separates himself from the counsel, the way, and the seat of these evil groups. Now, you must take stock of that as you read Scripture yourself. And as you're reading along, reading thoughtfully, ask those kinds of questions. Why did Scripture say it that way? Well, the answer for why Scripture said it that way is because the psalmist is trying to prove to you that it is the influence of these groups that you need to shut off, that you need to separate yourself from. He's, He's going beyond actions. He's going beyond externals. He's driving to internals. He's He's showing you that the battle for this blessedness starts in the mind. And the world's worldliness and satanic deception which abounds in their worldliness is pressing against you. This is the truth of Romans 12, 1 and 2. One of my favorite texts, as you know. Laying your life down as a living sacrifice, verse 1, in light of all the mercies you've been shown. And then in verse 2, do not be conform literally do not be pressed in by the image the way of thinking of the world resist that rather being transformed from the inside out with the renewing of your mind as the scriptures are put in the blessed man is marked by his constant awareness of the pressing agenda of the world's way of thinking The blessed man is marked by a a constant appraisal of everything he hears, of everything he sees, of everything that enters into his senses. He is evaluating in accord with the Word of God. What does God's Word say about this? He constantly heeds the counsel of Proverbs 4 and verse 23 where the wise father says to the foolish son, guard your heart, my son, for out of it flow the issues of life. Guard the gateways to your life. For the world is seeking entrance at every turn. Notice also a downward spiral in this text. It starts with general descriptions of evil and then it descends down to the most despised form of evil. The idea of the text is that one leads to the other. So it goes from, from wicked, general term of description of all who have rebelled against God to to sinners, those who are, are set in their ways of rebellion. They've not just turned from God, but this is who they are. This is their identity. They live their sin. To the seed of scoffers, these are those who, who mock God. So they've, they've rejected what God has said is true. They've rebelled against doing God's will His way in life. And, and then ultimately they've turned against God and started making fun of Him and of his people. That's the climax of of sinful rebellion as seen in that mocking of God at the end of verse 1. This is the digression we see in in Genesis 3, isn't it? In the Garden of Eden, where Eve is tempted with the, the words of Satan. And what does he do? He starts with the counsel of the wicked. He questions her. Did God really say? And then he reinterprets for her, well, what God actually Meant. What actually is true is he doesn't want you to do that because you'll be like him. Don't eat the fruit because then you'll be like God and you know everything he knows. And he doesn't want that, so you should eat it. And then he tempts her into walking in the way of sinners, taking the fruit, biting it, and eating it, which leads them to that, that mockery of behavior. Shaming God's clear, revealed word as though somehow it wasn't true. And we just proved it because we sinned against him this is the counsel of of satanic influence he's been discipling his followers in this craft ever since the battle for blessing starts in the mind of the blessed man as he refuses to walk in the counsel of the wicked this leads then to standing in the way of sinners taking in their opinions and their ways of thinking now you live like they live this is the epitome of worldliness thinking like loving like, looking like, and acting like those who are not right with God. 
it's taboo in the church in the 21st century to speak of holiness as opposed to worldliness. But brother or sister, we need to give heed to the Scriptures that call us to be holy as I am holy, God says. And the world is pressing in on you constantly, trying to make you like them. And that is the path to spiritual apathy, to spiritual depression, spiritual despair, spiritual anger. It will take the joy out of your walk with the Lord. This leads then to the seat of the scoffer. It quickly digresses into scoffing God, the peak expression of godliness. This is rebellion in full blossom. This is the flowering of the pride of heart which drives this whole digression into wickedness. Pride fuels wicked men to think differently than God has said, to act differently than God has commanded, and finally to mock God for all that he is and does. And in a wicked world, let's be honest, the seat of the scoffer is elevated to the highest positions. This is not just true in our day and age, but it is seemingly obviously true in our day and age. These scoffers of God get the, the premier TV shows. They're popular in Hollywood and in Washington, D.C. These scoffers of God are the ones who lately have been elected to the highest offices in the land who then appoint other scoffers of God to their prized positions within their administrations at every level. They have the highest seats in the land, and yet, as Spurgeon says, though their seats are elevated, they are very near the gate of hell. For they are walking according to the wisdom of their father, the devil, mocking God. This mockery, you know, has come like a flood into the everyday environment of our world. This is the cultural air we breathe now, the seat of scoffers. The scoffers have gained the loudest voices, the most prominent platforms. They look down their proud noses at God and his people, and they mock us and our bigoted, old-fashioned systems of truth and morality. They claim the moral high ground while flaunting the same lifestyle choices that sent fireballs from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. They mock God, and you must know, believer, God will not be mocked. For that which a man sows, he will also reap. But this is the air we breathe. Every day in classrooms around the world, teachers tell their students that there is indeed no God, that they can now live however they please because they are their own God. The God that sits on the cultural seat of deity is the God of self. Every heart has elevated self to ultimate worship. And this is why we are in the mess we are in in every phase and stage of culture and of society. And this is the daily threat you face. But the threat of the worldly way of thinking and living permeates you in ways more serious, don't you think? Those are the out there enemies that, yes, have influence and you need to be aware and guard yourself against, but there's a far greater internal battle happening, isn't there? The temptations of the flesh and the devil and the world play upon your sinful desires that still reside in your flesh, calling you to listen to their ideas, to walk in their ways and to reject the clear Word and way of God. You know which ones are uniquely tempting to you. You know which ruts of rebellion and sin you're prone to fall into when you're not walking in the grace and truth of Christ. You know which counsels of the wicked grab your ears the quickest. You know which way of the sinner is the most enticing to you. And so this psalm says to you, to know this spiritual blessedness and happiness, you need to keep yourself from that. Separating yourself from them, not listening to their counsel, not following their ways, and not taking part in their scoffing. The next mark of this blessed man is to be satisfied. The text of Scripture is so clear here, it's not enough to turn off the dirty faucet of 
polluted water being poured into your life by the world around you. You must also turn on the spigot of fresh, clean, and life-giving water. Can you with me just stop and rejoice in the Scriptures for a minute? How perfect and and well-ordered the Word of God is here. That God did not just say verse 1 and leave you to figure out what to replace it with. That He told you the negative in verse 1 and then He comes right after it with the positive in verse 2. You see, separation is alone not the answer. There must be two sides to this coin for it to have any value in the mercantile of God's economy. And the replacement for all that the world offers, that three-headed monster, the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, and the seat of scoffers, a three-headed monster that attacks you in every way, there is, there is one glorious answer to that three-headed monster. It is the Word of God, the far-surpassing value of what God has said. This blessed man is marked by this satisfaction. It's a, a deep delight in the law of the Lord. And because he delights in the law of God, he makes it his constant meditation. This blessed man understands the, the nature of the word of God. Therefore, he sets his heart upon the word of God. He knows that the, the word is from the living God, from his loving heavenly Father, who by his grace has rescued him from the pit of sin and eternal destruction. He knows that God's word is truth. He knows that it being truth then has the power to, to sanctify him, to grow him and mature him and give him hope in this world. He knows that God's word is an expression of God's love to his people. That because he's loved us, he's spoken clearly to us. And so he reciprocates that love from God by taking in the Word of God and seeking to walk in the ways of God. He knows that this Word from God is sufficient to address everything pertaining to life and godliness. And can I just say, that's easy to give lip service to and hard to make your spiritual feet run that marathon through life. where you struggle through the realities of emotional struggles and relationship problems and sin patterns, getting caught in sin and despair and tragedy and difficulty you never would have brought on yourself but now have to deal with. In those moments, you are tempted to believe that God's Word is good and needs help. And throughout Scripture, clearly laid before you, God's word is enough, sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness. And so the blessed man, convinced of that, delights in the word of God. That affection for the word then produces meditating on the word. You see how a love for the word propels the action relating to the word. And, and they're the same thing happening in you. you. You can't actually have one without the other. You can have the, the science of meditating, but if you don't have the, the heart affection of love for the Word, it, it's just clinical. You're just putting in like a, a cash register, something of value, hoping that later it will help you buy something you want. But when you have both of these going on, a, a love for the Word, a, a heart set on the beauty and the glory of God is seen in the Word, then you will meditate on the Word. You know this in everyday life, right? What do you think about the most? What do you read on the internet articles about the most? What draws your attention the most on social media? Why do you follow who you follow on whatever platform you use on social media? What apps are the most used on your phone? Showing the, the most cognitive effort between you and that information source. And, and whatever the answer to that is, there is an element of which you love those things. Your heart is set on those things. You, you, have, you have delighted in them. 
They've captured your affection. And so you return to them, and you, you can't help but think about them. And this is not always bad, right? If you love music, you find ways to learn about and engage in and listen to music. And you, in listening to that music, you, that becomes a subconscious of who you are. You've been around those people, you're standing there and there's a lull in conversation, they start humming. Like, that person loves music, right? It's just, it just comes out of them when nothing else is coming out of them. If you love your wife, you are meditating on, thinking about throughout any given day, how can I serve her? When I re-enter the home after work, how do I bless her as the wife of my youth whom I love? You see, your, your love, your affection for your spouse is evidenced by you setting your mind on how to do the expression of love needed in the relationship. So too with the Word of God. If you love the Word of God, you meditate upon the Word of God. Now you have lived long enough, most of you, to know the sheer disappointment of those things you love. Having set your heart on some element of life in this world, maybe a good thing that you have made an idol of your heart and thought too much about and given too much attention to, you have woken up at some point in that journey and realized this is totally ridiculous and worthless. And there's no true joy here. But I'm caught in this thing, and you keep coming back to it, but you struggle with the, the despair of that reality, don't you? So you return to, to food as an example because it, it delights you and it comforts you and it's a blessing to you. But it's a love-hate relationship, right? It does other things in your body that you're like, what in the world? And that's just one example of many. We, we come to the end of the loveliness of that thing and we get disgusted with it. This is why married couples five, six years on, apart from Christ, say, I don't love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. What does that mean? That means familiarity has bred resentment. I, I loved you while things were good and while you loved me and I loved you for how you loved me and now we're close enough where that's all worn off and you snore and leave your toothbrush out and don't put your underwear in the hamper and I'm done. I don't love you anymore. The Word of God is not like that. You will never, through familiarity, come to the end of the loveliness of the Word of God. There is endless delight to be found in this book. As an example of that, I had this last week to prepare for Acts 13 this morning. Poor students didn't know they were getting me instead of Tim Huxman, but they got me instead. I had some few precious hours to spend thinking through, processing, and just meditating on that text. What I did with Acts 13 this week is what you could do with this. I did nothing Greek-wise. I read a commentary you could read, and I just molded over in my mind at several different occasions. I did this prayerfully, submissively, seeking to know God through His Word. And you know what? as he does every time. I've read that text hundreds of times. And he opened up that text to me in ways I had never seen before. Truths in Acts 13 that fanned the flame of my faith. He taught me about leadership in the church. He taught me about decision-making as it relates to the will of God. He taught me about the, the need for courage and gospel presentation and truth, clarity of truth and confronting evil and perseverance in ministry when things go tough and how to expect opposition to the gospel and on and on and on the list goes because I took the time to open the word prayerfully reading and meditating on it and guess what I found? Well, just another boring description of God's work 2,000 years ago. A treasure trove of the diamonds and the pearls and the gold nuggets the rubies and the precious jewels of spiritual truth laying right there on the floor 
of God's mind in Acts 13. Beloved, you will never be dissatisfied with the word, having spent time in the word, giving your heart to the word. This meditation, your, your affection for the word then leads to a meditation of the word. It's a, an uttering in a low voice. It's a, a slow and constant moaning and groaning in a barely audible fashion. That's what that word means. It's like the mechanic walking around the shop, wrestling through a problem with a car, not able to figure it out, and he's just processing to himself. He's verbally processing under his breath. You don't know what he's saying, but he's working through all that it might be. He's meditating on the problem and its solution. This is the student in math class working on a math problem that is beyond difficult, and as they work through the homework assignment, they mutter words to themselves sitting at the dining room table, pen, pencil and paper working, and they're just talking, but you have no idea what they're saying. They're meditating on the problem working it through, pulling it apart, trying to come up with a solution. This meditation in Psalm 1 is a spiritual digestive system for the bread of the Word. Taking in the nutrients of God's Word into our spiritual stomachs, the digestive process begins to break down the Word and to pull it apart and then to to send out the nutrients, the spiritual nutrients to your inner man to bless you and to help you and to make you spiritually healthy and just like your breakfast from this morning and just like your lunch in a few minutes it takes more than 10 to 15 minutes to to digest it it doesn't take much longer than that to eat it especially in my house it goes fast right and you're done you can move on with life but you far from moved on what you ate it is now entered in to become part of you And the rest of the system kicks in and starts tearing it apart and nourishing and feeding the cells of your body. This is what happens as we meditate on the Word. Unlike physical food being taken into the stomach, though, this doesn't just happen to you. You don't just put the Word of God into you by reading it and then all of a sudden you're magically meditating on it, digesting it, and now taking apart its nutrients. No, there's work to be done here. This is a conscious effort of your spiritual mind and heart to think deeply and continuously about God and His Word. I urge you to start this in the morning and to continue all day long. Set patterns and habits to make the first thing you do in any, on any given day to be in the Word of God. You need the reset for your flesh that only the Word can provide. You wake up as wicked as ever. Thinking about all these selfish thoughts and all about you, you need the reset of the Word to reorient your mind and reshape your heart. And then let it continue throughout the day. Revisit that same text. Read five verses. Read 15. Read a chapter. Read 10 chapters. I don't care. Read the Bible and then come back to it. So I don't have time for that. Yes, you do have time for that. You have so many ways of access to the Word now more than any generation before us. If you delight in the Word, find ways to get the Word in you, to digest the Word, to think about the Word, to chew on the Word, and to be changed by the Word. This chewing on truth in your inner man is what it will look like as the world decays around you and you cling to the promises of God. You hear another news report that shakes you to the core. What you need right then are the unchanging, unalterable promises of God. This is the measured response of godliness when when you're sinned against and hurt by another believer in the body. It's in that moment you need to run to the word Ask the Lord to show you, God, how should I respond here? What have you said about this scenario and about my response from here on out? This continues day and night, the constant effort of the blessed man. As we start a new year, I would ask you, what is your level of of delight in the word of God? Can you put your name in this text? Blessed is 
Matt. For his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Do you know the word better this January than you did last? Are you more satisfied with God and his truth today than you were January 1, 2022? What was your pattern of intake like in this last year? Take, take an assessment. What did that look like? Where can you grow in this way? What excuses have you made that you need to repent of and, and call them what they are? Where do you need to stop being soft with yourself and giving yourself passes in this category and being honest that you're spiritually lazy and spiritually detached, if that's true? What is it that distracts you from the Word? And frankly, why are you letting it? Where are you listening to and taking in the counsel of the wicked? Where are you walking in the way of sinners? Where are you mocking God by your attitude and your behavior? Beloved, if you need to grow in your delight of the word, I lay before you Psalm 119. It is the clearest text in all of Scripture that speaks of one man's testimony of love for the word of God. Maybe one of the best things you could do starting this January would be to commit to reading Psalm 119 every day. You miss a day, listen, the righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. You miss a day, just get back up by his grace and get back on course. Dependent on him, not out of duty, but out of delight, seeking to foster in you a love for God and his word. One of the best things you could do would be to commit to reading Psalm 119 every day in the month of January. Before you open the Bible, or as you open the Bible, stop and pray to the Lord. Thank Him for giving you this word, and beg Him to give you the heart of the psalmist. Ask Him to show you what it was about this man and his understanding of God and His word that gave him a love for the Scriptures. So much so that he would say in Psalm 119, I love your word more than thousands of gold or silver pieces. Would you give up all of your possessions to maintain this possession? The Word of God? To have a heart like that, ask the Lord for it. Beg of Him to work in you that way. This is the mark of a blessed man satisfied with God and saturated with His Word. Third mark is successful. He is successful. He's likened in verse 3, this blessed man to a tree planted by streams of life-giving water. You know the geography of of Israel the same today as it was when this was written. The mountain range runs north to south. Storms move east to west. As the storms move from the east coming to the west, they have to lose all their moisture to get over the mountain range. And so the western side of the mountain range is dry and arid. And they get precious little rain in Israel anyway, so it's mostly dry and arid. And this is especially dry and arid. But during the rainy season, these clouds have enough rain to make it over the peak and still have some moisture to drop on the other side. And so as they do, these riverbeds form as it rains in the rainy season on the western side of the slope. They call them wadis, W-A-D-I. They form riverbeds that flow down to the Jordan River. Most of the year, those wadis are dry. But during rainy season, they're full of water. The psalmist's point is to say to you, the blessed man is not planted by a wadi. He's planted by an unending river that never loses its supply of water. He's planted down by the Jordan with an unending, bountiful supply of fresh, life-giving water. Notice that this is an intentional planting of the tree in a spot where the water supply never ends. He was put there on purpose. This is the spiritual intentionality of the blessed man. Putting himself where he knows the ever-flowing stream of grace and truth and life are never shut off. And this then produces a fruitful tree, one that produces timely fruit in its season, whose leaf never withers from a lack of moisture. Notice that the, the water does not enter the tree and then get piped to a different location as though somehow the tree is just there as an avenue to give water somewhere else. Now, the tree is a living organism. 
and it needs the life-giving supply of that water. And that water enters into the tree and activates the pre-programmed process within the tree designed by God to take that life-giving water and the nutrients of the soil and produce leaves and eventually fruit, useful, helpful, good-looking, blessed fruit. You're like that tree. You're a living organism. You're not a conduit of truth. You don't just have the the privilege of being an avenue for which truth to come in you and through you and out of you to someone else. No, truth entering into you changes you. It activates a process pre-programmed in your spiritual DNA by the God who made you and who redeemed you. And so this life-giving water enters into you, the tree, and produces fruit out of you. The fruit of the Spirit, namely, love, joy, peace, and the rest of the list. Gentleness and kindness and goodness. Producing out of you timely fruit. Useful, good, helpful fruit. Isn't this exactly what we heard in John 15? Do you remember that text? Abide in me and I in you. And if you abide in me and I in you, you will produce much fruit. Similar thought here. Abide in the word, Christ's word. Abide in Christ by abiding in his word. Plant your tree next to his ever-flowing stream. Let your roots run down deep into that unending supply. Let that truth enter in to you and change you. Bringing growth and health and fruit. And for the Christian there is an unending need for appropriate fruit, right? There are seasons of life that call for different evidences of the Spirit's work in you. Different fruits to come out of you in those moments. And how will that happen? How when you're waiting for God to give you the thing you've been waiting for for X number of months, years, or decades? How in that moment do you produce the fruit of settled hope, of persevering faith, of righteousness in the waiting? How do you do that? How in the season of tragedy when God strikes your family with, in our minds, an untimely disaster and He takes from your midst someone you never thought you'd have to live without? How in that moment is the fruit of peace, joy, and love for others produced? How does it come out in that season? Well, brother, just have peace. My world just got turned upside down. Life will never look the same. And you're saying to me, have peace? You know how you produce timely fruit in its season? You root yourself in the Word of God. And God, by His Spirit, will produce out of you the fruit needed in that moment. The winds of the storm may blow, and whatever fruit is needed in that moment will come out of your spiritual tree. The scorching sun of dry summer heat will burn upon you and God will produce out of you the fruit needed for that moment. The cold darkness of winter will set upon you, but God in that moment will produce out of you the fruit needed. Why? Because your roots are where they're supposed to be. In the living and abiding Word of God. Last mark of this blessed man is that he is secure. He is secure, verses 5 and 6, 4 through 6, I should say. We see the security of this blessed man in contrast to the wicked. Verse 4, the psalmist pivots from the righteous being like a tree planted by the streams of water to the wicked who are not so. It's a strong contrast in the text. This is not their lot. This is not their blessing. They do not know this way. They're not like that tree who is always successful, well-rooted, always producing seasonal fruit. Rather, they're like chaff. I mean, can you think of a, a broader spectrum of metaphor to use? From tree to chaff. 
A tree shaken in the wind but unmoved. Facing the the horrors of untimely trouble and disaster and storm but unmoved. Chaff blown around by the winds of wickedness. Not rooted in any way, not useful in any way, not helpful in any way. Not productive in any way, just chaff blowing in the air. Like when you drive on First Street during wheat harvest and the chaff is blowing across the road. That is what the wicked are like. He goes on to say they will not stand before the God of heaven on judgment day. They'll have no defense. The crushing blow of their righteous condemnation will fall upon their head. They will not be able to stand before the righteous judge and declare their innocence. Rather, they will forever perish. As the writer of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right unto man, and the end thereof is death. This is the end of the way of the wicked. But the righteous are not like this, he says in verse 6. The blessed man is the exact opposite. He is secure like a tree, and the Lord knows his way. Meaning the, the Lord pays close attention to every step to bring him closer and deliver him safely home. So the question before you this morning is, which one are you? Are you the righteous or the wicked? How would we know? Well, Psalm 14.3 says they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So is anyone righteous? According to Psalm 14.3, no. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who is righteous by their own record? No one. The psalmist asks in Psalm 25, who, O Lord, should ascend to your holy hill to draw near to you and to worship you? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who is that? It is none of us. But praise be to God, he provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, to be cleansed, and to be made righteous with a righteousness foreign to us, alien to us, coming from outside of us, not worked up within us. Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise be to God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Well, how do you get that applied to you? Well, Paul answers that in the New Testament when he speaks of Christ, saying that for our sake God made Christ to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So who are the righteous and who are the wicked? The righteous are those who by faith have been given the righteousness of Christ Jesus our Lord, forgiven of their sins by his death, justified by his resurrection, guaranteed eternity with him by his ascension and his soon return. The wicked are those who are outside of Christ. Who have not believed in Christ and his finished work for the forgiveness of their sins. And their way will perish. Friend, if you enter 23 not knowing Christ, you need not go another moment into this year apart from him. Right now, in this very second. You can humble yourself before the God who made you, confessing your rebellion and your wickedness, deserving of eternal condemnation, and crying out to God to forgive you of your sins through the sacrifice and the work of his son. Believing by faith that Jesus Christ can heal you, forgive you, and save you. Friend, may today be the day of your salvation, the day of entering in to the glories of God's family. Brother or sister, you think I'm done. Hold on a second. For you, 
Dear one, there is spiritual happiness waiting for you this year. I'll give you three words of application to think about as you go your way. The first is to assess. Take inventory of your, of your life and of your relationship with the Lord and with his word. I mean more than anything for this sermon to be an encouragement to you. I know I exhorted you. I know I challenged you. That should be encouraging if you are in Christ, longing to get pushed and prodded along. So assess, think back. Count the losses. Be honest, brutally honest with yourself. Say what God says about them. Second word of application is to commit. It's a fresh year by God's design. Recommit yourself to the word. Have a plan. Be specific. It helps me to have a place and to have a pattern. This is just what I do when I get up. I get my coffee, I go to my chair with my Bible, and I pray, and I read. Is it always like walking in lily fields of heaven and glory and awe and wonder? No, sometimes I'm like fighting to stay awake and not sure where I am or what's going on. But it still feeds my soul. And then there are other days when God arrests me with his word. And I can't get away from it. This ought be your pattern. Set a time, set a place, set a way. Make it your habit. And then third point of application is to share. Talk to others about this. It should be okay in our families to talk about how we relate to the word, right? Parents, it's okay for you to talk to your kids about what you do in reading the word. Kids, it's all right for you to say to your parents, hey, I, I really haven't been in my Bible much in 22. It's been a struggle. I have really fallen down. They will meet you with grace, right, parents? You'll meet them with grace, and you'll say, that's okay. Let me help you. Let me teach you and instruct you and show you the way forward. May God in his kindness bless us with spiritual blessings abundant and free in 23. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege of studying your word together. Would you make us to be the men and women of this text? Separated and satisfied. Committed to studying the word, meditating on it. Secure in your grip of us. Lord, would you make us those people this year? Pray for those among us who do not yet know Christ. Father, by your spirit's work upon them, would you convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment? Would you show them that Christ is their only hope? Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.